Welcome to New Generation, an insider's guide to a clean energy future. I'm Elena Mannion. I'm a senior research analyst at American Efficient, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pete Curtis, who is the CEO of American Efficient. Hi, Pete. Hi, Elena. New Generation is a podcast dedicated to aspiring leaders in the energy transition. During our show, we interview today's clean energy leaders and experts and get insights into new generation resources, such as energy efficiency, that are driving the energy transition. Elena, I'm super excited to have Alex Lasky on today's show, not just because he's the co-founder and executive chair of of Rewiring America. Alex and I have actually known each other since 2007, when we serendipitously met at an eSource conference in Denver, Colorado. Alex was at the conference to talk about O-Power, which was then called Positive Energy. That's a whole other story. And O-Power is the behavioral energy efficiency company that he founded with Dan Yates. I believe he was sharing the results of the Sacramento pilot at the conference. Alex and I kept in touch for the next few months, and he convinced me to join him, Dan, Tyler, and a handful of others at O-Power. And I have to say, it was one of the best decisions of my life. It was an incredible ride. Under his leadership, Opower grew into a publicly traded company whose cloud-based software is used by more than half the largest electric and gas utilities in the United States. Today, Opower is a division of Oracle, and it delivers about six terawatt hours of energy savings per year and helps homeowners save more than a billion dollars a year on their annual energy bills. Alex is also a board member of Arcadia and a longtime director of the Conservation Lands Foundation. He was a founding commissioner on the Energy Transitions Commission and a board member of Advanced Energy Economy, both organizations that we're very involved in as well. Alex, welcome to New Generation. Terrific to be here, Pete. And Elena, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And to kick things off, I'd love to hear more about your career path. So what drew you into clean energy in the first place? Yeah, um, well, I... I've long been interested in trying to make the world a better place. I, after college, thought that I would work in or went to college thinking I would either work in politics or journalism because I thought those were the two best places for me to have a positive impact on things. In college, I spent time working for a daily newspaper, both in the in school and also took a semester off and wrote for the Casper Star Tribune, which is the only daily paper in the state of Wyoming. Discovered that though I love journalism, that Daily deadlines were uh, something that my I was constitutionally um, allergic to, uh, and so I decided perhaps focus on politics instead. And several years working on political campaigns perhaps cured me of that ambition as well. As the candidates I, whose campaigns I worked on and the campaigns I eventually managed were very good at coming in second place. But during that time, I became particularly interested in, among other issues, energy and climate issues. And in 2006, I had the opportunity to work in public opinion research or otherwise known as polling and worked on a whole bunch of issues. But among the campaigns I worked on were a number of clean energy related ballot measures and legislative campaigns, as well as other environmental measures. And in spite of my involvement in those campaigns, several of them actually succeeded. And I became increasingly interested at the time in trying to have a bigger impact in this space. And I partnered up, as Pete said, with my very close friend, Dan Yates, uh, who was a friend of mine from college, who, unlike me, had succeeded in a bunch of the things he had done subsequent to college. He had had a successful educational (laughs) software company. 
Uh, and he approached me and said, hey, he had, for for variety of personal reasons, had a sort of newfound, renewed interest in doing something positive on the environment and approached me and said, we ought to do something together to try and have a positive impact, maybe start a company or some other organization. And I said, well, you know, well, that sounds like a good idea. And uh, in January of 2007, we started getting together every day at, I was going to say at our office, but we really squatted at a desk in somebody else's office. And with the ambition that we would try and come up with something to work on together that had potential and in the process would would see if we actually enjoyed working together as much as we enjoyed being friends. And several months into 2007, we had sort of landed upon two answers. One was that we actually did enjoy working together and had a lot of complementary skill sets and interests. And the other thing was that we thought we had a pretty good idea, namely that at the time in 2007, the most of the focus in clean energy in Silicon Valley, which is where we were, we were in San Francisco, most of the focus was on the supply side of energy, namely how is energy being produced and how can we change from fossil fuel generation to renewable generation. And we realized that there was a equal problem on the other side of the equation, which is how is energy being consumed or used? And so, uh, unsexy though it were, we thought nobody's paying attention to this space, maybe because it's unsexy and we ought to, we ought to try and do something in it. Uh, and so we, you know, I can tell a longer story of this and happy to came up with this idea, a relatively simple idea that, and some of this was informed by the polling work I had done that nearly everybody thinks wasting energy is a bad idea. Uh, most people want to do the right thing. And our belief was that they're just not being presented with the right information in a way that is digestible and motivating to them. Uh, and so we thought if we can create better communications to energy consumers, we could change the demand side and in doing so have a meaningful impact on climate. The next then next sort of obvious step was to partner with utilities, not because we had relationships with utilities, but because 120 million American households have relationships with utilities, and it's the primary way through which those homes think about or interact with energy consumption. Very few people, aside from the theory of us recording this podcast, perhaps a good number of your listeners too, very few of us think about how we and when we use energy in our homes. The interaction, you know, the sort of the only time people think about it is when they get a bill that's unexpectedly high or when there's an outage. And so what we realized very early on was that if we were going to motivate people to make better decisions, we couldn't start with the, with the premise that we were going to make it exciting for people and that we were going to get people to pay attention of their own accord. We decided that we should partner with the incumbents, with the utilities, and with them provide better information to their consumers. So that the utility bill, which is at best a forgettable experience for most consumers and quite often an aggravating and frustrating experience, could instead that experience could be improved and that utilities could be delivering something of value in that experience, namely better information to help consumers make better choices. And so that's when we started. And I think, Pete, I, I sort of think it was maybe 2008 when we met. met uh, you know, you don't look a day older uh, <laughs> than you did then. Um, but um, we did meet at that eSource conference. I remember very clearly meeting you, regardless of whether it was 07 or 08. It was several years ago. And uh, just my version of that story is, you know, I was there with this company called Positive Energy. We were sort of trying to trying to convince people to work with us, utilities. And here was this guy, uh, 
Pete Curtis, who was a salesperson, led sales for a another company uh, that was doing something that I thought was far less exciting. But you know, the best salespeople you often find are not working for the companies with the best product because uh, the best products can sell themselves. But Pete was managing to sell a product that uh, nobody had any business buying, uh, and uh, and not because it was bad for the world, but just because it was not that useful. Um, and so. Uh, the best thing that came out of that conference for sure. And one of the best decisions Pete described joining Opower is one of the best decisions he made. Certainly one of the best things we ever did at Opower uh, was hire, uh, was recruit and hire Pete. Uh, and uh, it, you know, as people tell you, it wasn't just Pete. The company was a success because we had an absolutely world beating, passionate group of people uh, working together. And, uh, you know, in addition to Pete, there are dozens and maybe hundreds of lifelong friends uh, and people who are now like Pete running companies, running divisions of companies, running nonprofit organizations and making a positive impact on the world. So it makes me very proud to be reunited with you here, Pete, um, either 14 or 15 years later. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you too, Alex. And I do, I do think you're right. It was 2008 because I think I joined at the end of 2008, just a few, a few months after um, and, and as I was telling Elena before we got on today, it was, there were a few years there at Opower where I feel like we were just bottling lightning, you know, from, and, and not just from a, an impact and a success perspective and, and all the euphoria that goes along with that, but just from a, the, we were like a magnet to unbelievable talent, like unbelievable talent. And, and looking out at the cohort and the, that, that, that became Opower in those years, it is pretty amazing what people have gone on to do. And you just look at any news feed of things in the clean tech space and you, it seems like 25% of the people that were quoted used to work at Opower, which is just so cool. Yeah, I think it's a testament to a lot of things, but I guess to, to uh, specifically call out uh, Dan's influence on this, Dan Yates, who was my co-founder and our CEO, was insistent from day one that uh, when you know, things started going well for us because Pete was out selling and I was out helping him sell and we got utilities wanting to work with us. And uh, Tyler, who works with you at American Fishing, was doing the analysis and it turned out we were, we were having a positive impact and an increased demand. And it meant there was a real hunger for our product out there. And so there was a need to hire people to fulfill that demand, salespeople, uh, implementation colleagues, software engineers, product managers. And the, we had tons of openings. Uh, and Dan was insistent that the biggest mistake we could make would be to hire the wrong people quickly rather than the right people slowly. And, you know, he drilled that. He spent, and every good, every terrific CEO spends, you know, a plurality of their time recruiting. Uh, and at least in the good times. And Dan was doing that always and did that six days a week for 10 consecutive years. And so, and he inculcated in all of us a culture of really recruiting and finding terrific people. So when I saw Pete at that conference present, I heard Dan's voice say, go get him. Uh, and so I'm glad I did and I'm glad we're here together. Indeed, indeed. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, let's, um, I think we could trade up our stories and, uh, for, for hours, which I, which I always love to do, but, but I also want to spend a lot more time today talking about what you're doing now, which is 
just as exciting, if not more exciting. And you're leading one of the most important, in my mind, nonprofits that there is focused on electrifying everything in our communities. And and this is re- rewiring America. And it's a pretty interesting time for you guys with uh, the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act. And a lot of the things you all have been working on seem represented in, in, in that legislation, thank goodness. Tell us a little more about Rewiring America and what you guys are trying to do. Yeah, uh, well, it is a super exciting time, as you mentioned. You know, just a little bit on the history here in the through line, O-Power, as I described, was about empowering ordinary consumers, Americans first, and then eventually uh, consumers in all countries to make better decisions about their energy consumption through better information from their utilities. And after I left O-Power, which had become a division of Oracle, uh, I took a little bit of a break and then returned committed to working on on climate and on the intersection of climate and economic inequality and considered for a moment taking a job to help implement decarbonization at a statewide level. In the process of thinking about that and helping get some legislation through, I worked in in New York on the campaign to pass their climate bill that set a target of or mandate of 2050 to get to a net zero economy. I I really started thinking more and more about, well, what it was going to take to decarbonize not just the economy of one state, but to decarbonize the economy of the country. And what became clear again was that the demand side was going to be the hardest piece. Uh, There are 42% of our emissions in the economy uh, come from decisions that are made in those 120 million homes across the U.S. So where do we get our electricity from? What what car do we drive or how else do we get to and from work and get our kids to and from school uh, and et cetera, how we heat our water, how we heat the air in our homes, how we dry our clothes and how we cook our food. 42% of all emissions come from those decisions. And there are 120 million homes owned by roughly a hundred million people. And all told by our calculation, it's a billion machines that need to be replaced and electrified. Uh, and that's each one of those decisions is an individual decision made by one of those 100 million people. And so while I saw great progress and Pete, you and I experienced great progress on the supply side during our decade working together, you know, that is to say that utilities were quickly, though not as quick as any of us would want, adopting clean energy supply. Uh, there what we were and remain stuck on the demand side of transitioning out of the fossil burning machines that are in our homes, namely sort of another way of thinking about it. Right now, most of those 120 million homes operate on a fossil fuel OS, and we need to move them to an electrification electric OS. And so um, I I was quite worried about this and called Saul Griffith. Uh, I haven't seen the show Better Call Saul, but I had met <laughs> Saul Griffith. Uh, you know, you weren't the only a brilliant and charismatic person I met at a utility conference. I also had met Saul uh, and he and I had spoken at a couple of conferences and become friendly. And I reached out to him in the summer of 2019 to say, you know, is there something coming down the pipe about electric heating, some new technology? Saul runs, uh, started runs uh, a place called Other Lab in San Francisco. It's a privately owned laboratory that works on trying to build and solve hard technology problems. A lot of funding from the government 
to do problems and they've they've been incredibly inventive and generative in creating new technologies and solutions. So I thought, well, if anybody's going to know about new heating solutions, it's going to make uh, installing electric heating easier, cheaper, more appealing. It'll be solved. So I called him and he had a couple of technologies that he was contemplating and that they were building and they're uh, one of them is now out in the world called Gradient. It's a it's a, a mini duct heat pump that replaces room air conditioning, and they're doing incredibly well. We ended up spending most of the time on our call talking about politics and policy that were getting in the way of electrifying our future. And I'll get to the what the the heart of that conversation in a moment. But we had a we began to realize that there's an opportunity to create a new. And not only an opportunity, an obligation to create a new, a new uh, narrative and a new organization to spread that narrative and a, a narrative of abundance. And the future needn't be one, and this is what the climate conversation was at the time uh, and has been for ever since CAFE standards and, and Energy Star were implemented. I mean, the sort of modern environmental movement uh, and energy uh, movement started in, in part in response to the oil crisis of the 70s which was before Pete and I were attending uh, conferences, uh, just barely. But, uh, you know, from that, from that moment in the 70s, we've been focused on a austerity program, essentially. How do we reduce the amount of energy we use in order to meet a, our limited supply? And what was necessary, what is necessary to get to zero is not, you can't efficiency your way down to zero unless we're all going to, live naked out in the woods. Um, and so we need a transformation, not just an efficiency narrative. And that transformation narrative, it turns out, today we use 100 quads of energy in the U.S. If we electrified every fossil burning machine from the power plant down to the cars in our garage and the, and the furnaces in our homes, we would have the same economy we have today, the greatest economy in the history of the world or the most productive economy in the history of the world, um, with only 50 quads of energy. So simply electrifying and powering that electricity, uh, powering those electric products with renewables reduces our energy need in half. Um, and this ought to be a story not of sacrifice, but of abundance, because if we can get the same life we have today with half as much energy, well, guess what? There's more money in each of our pockets, less money in the energy producer pockets, the greatest transfer of wealth from producers to consumers. Um, and, uh, you know, as anybody can tell you who's driven an EV, these are better products. You know, you don't, you don't get a Tesla or even a, a Bolt and say, well, I'm going to go back next car, I'm going to get an internal combustion engine car. This is almost always a one-way street because the car is higher performing, quieter, lower cost to maintain and own uh, just much less of a headache all around. So um, anyway, we 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 recognize this that there was a need to change the narrative around this. We ought ought not be afraid of talking about combating climate change because combating climate change needn't be a story of sacrifice and taxes, but rather ought to be a story about abundance and a better future. And we started having these conversations, and quickly I was reconnected to Ari Matusiak, who became our third co-founder. Uh, and has been the driving force of our success to date. And we launched the organization July of 2020. Uh, and so it's been a really exciting two years trying to change the narrative around combating climate change and trying to have an impact on policy. 
Well, speaking of policy, what was your reaction to the Inflation Reduction Act? And um, what are a couple of the components you're most excited about? Yeah, my reaction was uh, shock and relief and uh, a real sort of deep happiness, because I think this is a absolutely market tilting, uh, economy transforming piece of legislation. Uh, And the team at Rewiring America, Ari and Leah and Rachel and Sam uh, and, you know, a bunch of other people put in thousands of hours over the last 18 months to try and help craft this policy and get it through. And so, uh, and of course, they're not alone, uh, but they're the people I work most closely with. So I'm really grateful to them and thrilled. So, you know, what's market tilting and, and economy transforming about it is that it it creates, um, one way of thinking about it is that it, it, every American all of a sudden was just set up with a climate bank account. Hmm. Each of us, uh, whether we yet know it or not, have access to up to $18,000 now in tax credits and rebates to help us electrify our lives, to decarbonize our lives. And uh, this is in the form of tax credits and rebates for continued for rooftop solar, uh, new for geothermal, new for battery storage, but also extension of the electric vehicle tax credits, the now also with the tax credits for used electric vehicles that help make these tax credits available, not just to the wealthiest, but to everybody. And then critically and importantly, the other items in the house that we've um, made mention of that drive the 42% of emissions in our economy. Heat pumps to replace our fossil burning furnaces. Heat pump hot water heaters to replace our fossil burning hot water heaters. Rebates for induction stoves, rebates for electric clothes dryers. And critically, and again, sort of in the sort of unsexy camp a la O-Power, money in the form of, again, rebates uh, and tax credits for upgrading your electric panel and the wiring in your house. Because as I know Pete has experienced, even if you're inclined and ready to buy an electric appliance to replace the fossil burning appliance, even if you're ready to switch your OS, you know, your hot water heater breaks, you call in the the guy with the contractor who wants to replace your hot water heater and you tell him, you insist, I want a heat pump hot water heater. And he says, okay, great. I can, you know, eventually you convince him to do it or you find the guy who will be wanting to do it. And they'll say, that's terrific. Uh, before I do that, you're going to need an electrician to come in here, upgrade your electric service, rewire the house, put in a 240 outlet where in the boiler room so that we can plug this hot water heater in. And that'll take two or three weeks. And so now you're forced to choose between the heat pump hot water heater that you wanted uh, and having a hot shower for the next three weeks. Uh, and so, you know, people often will then forego the the heat pump hot water heater and say, I'll get around to it next time. Well, next time is 15 years later because that hot fossil burning hot water heater that you're going to install is going to last 15 years. And so, you know, there's a lot of money in this bill uh, to help people reformat and rewire their house so that their homes are electrification ready. Mm. Um, And so on the one hand, it's an $18,000 climate account that, you know, we don't eat that each of us now has and don't yet realize But on the other hand, it is also, there's another account that we've all been paying into for way too long, which is the fossil fuel tax uh, account. 
because you know, there's a lot of talk appropriately slow about so about inflation. Well, half of what's driving inflation are the underlying uh, fossil fuel costs that drive a bunch of costs in our economy. And so every year, by our calculation, uh, and you can go to rewiringamerica.org to get all of the details, but this has been, MIT Press has signed off on this, the DOE has signed off on this. Every year, by our calculation, Americans are wasting, on average, $1,800 a year because we're on fossil fuels instead of on clean electricity. That's $1,800 a year that we're all paying in, in a fossil fuel tax uh, that as we use the $18,000 uh, that are in our uh, climate bank account to electrify our homes, uh, we will stop paying $1,800 a year in a fossil fuel tax. So, you know, from a from a economy perspective, this has the opportunity of really radically transforming and uh, people's sense of sense and reality of economic security in their own homes and lives. Uh, you know, nearly 50% of Americans have less than $500 in savings. Uh, the opportunity to deliver on average $1,800 a year in, in savings to those Americans will change their lives. Uh, and so, and of course, the other thing it does, which is the topic of this conversation, is can radically help us decarbonize the economy. It's 42% of emissions uh, that we will see disappear as a consequence of these homes and vehicles being electrified. Yeah, Alex, you, and you and I have spoken about this a lot. I mean, these incentives are fantastic. Not only the breadth, but also the structure of, of driving the majority of the funds to lower income and medium income households, and uh, which has been on the it's been pear shaped for so long. It's time to uh, it's time that we got that right, which is fantastic. And you can see how EVs is almost an easier thing than is the electrification of our homes because. You go buy this car, replace your old car. It's a, it's a rather straightforward process, even if you have to get a charger put put in your garage or apartment. But but if I understand it correctly, folks that replace their hot water heaters and their and their HVAC systems almost always do it because of an emergency, like that it goes out. Yep. So I think you share with me something like eighty percent of the retrofit HVAC systems are done because of a break. Um, ha and there's a lot of friction in not replacing yeah. it with just the same old fossil fuel machine. So like, how do we, how do we attack that sort of pivot point in this decision process? No, you, you raise an excellent point. I think, I think, um, I think the inflation reduction act is a starting point to, to transforming the market to begin to change that. So now all this money exists. We, we've described some of it. And again, you can go to rewiringamerica.org and go to our calculator to figure out exactly how much you're eligible, how much is sitting in your bank account. Um, I guess it will vary based on your income and where you live. You know, there are a lot of electrification moments that are beginning to happen in people's lives. And, and I think the critical thing, because there are a billion machines and roughly eight or nine of them per household, is to try and string them along together. So, for instance, Pete, you mentioned one of the biggest ones. Uh, there are 12 million vehicles that are purchased every year in the U.S., I think, give or take. Increasingly, those are becoming electric vehicles. And by 2035, you know, Ford GM said they're only going to be selling EV, just uh just last week, California announced that that they're they're not going to allow internal combustion engine cars to be sold after 2035. And, and so, you know, increasingly of those 12 million, more and more are going to be EVs. When you buy an EV, you're going to drive it home, and you're going to realize, oh, I want to start charging this in my 
in my home, either in the garage or in the driveway. And so uh, you buy the Ford F-150 Lightning. The Ford F-150 is the most popular vehicle in America. Um, and so as people bring those home, they're essentially, by the way, buying a battery with a car attached to it <laughs> because the batteries in the F-150 uh, all in cost less than the pe- Tesla Powerwall. And you also get a free truck with it uh, and cup holders um, and a radio. Um, I guess radios may not exist anymore. Uh, I was going to say CD player, but you have something to listen to music on. Uh, and uh, once you get that truck into your driveway or into your garage, you're going to want to charge it there. And Ford will help enable you to do that. And there are other companies out there that will help you enable it. And the, one of the really fantastic things about the Ford F-150, and this will be increasingly true of all EVs, is that those batteries can also be used to back up your home if you have the right level two charger in there. So you're going to go and install or char- back up the electric appliances in your home. So uh, the battery can be two-way. It's not just going to receive electricity from your home, but you can power the devices in your home. And so you're going to install this this charger that may necessitate an upgrade of the breaker box. And now you'll have a tax credit uh, and rebate to upgrade the breaker box. And the electrician who's coming in uh, will hopefully know about that. What we need to make sure happens when you get the vehicle is that while you're doing that, the rest of your home is reformatted. It doesn't mean that you should throw out the hot water heater, the gas hot water heater that you bought four years earlier, because it's only four years old. But what we should make sure we're doing and we're incentivizing and motivating the electricians to do is to put in the 240 outlet where the hot water heater is and where the gas furnace is and where the stove is. If he or she is already in your home rewiring the home to put in a a charger, we might as well put these other uh, get the house ready for these other appliances. And you'll want to switch to these other appliances, not only because the costs are lower, but now with that F-150, you're going to have a battery to back up those appliances. So uh, if, if the power goes out, you'll have three days of backup sitting in your garage to power the hot water heater and the, the heat pump and the stove so you can continue to live your life. Uh, and so there are all sorts of reasons why these things should go together. And the critical part that the Inflation Reduction Act enables but doesn't guarantee is that we begin to string together these electrification moments because those eight choices in your home, you know, you're going to, the hot water heater is going to break in four years. You'll replace it then. Better be an electric. You're going to do that. You know, two years later, the furnace is going to conk out. Three years after that, maybe you'll install solar panels or a battery or you'll buy the EV. These things don't happen all at once, but we need to make sure that when they happen, we help enable the next and the next and the next. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so. It. So it sounds like it, you, whatever the point of entry is, be, be it EV or some other, you just. It's, it, well, I, I, I walk away from that. Your comments, thinking it's a good time to be an electrician. <laughs> it's a great time to be an electrician, uh, and uh, it's even better to be uh, a young person thinking about what to do because we. They're just signaled to the market. We're going to need a million more electricians and a million more HVAC contractors in this country uh, in order to do all of this work and continue to install and maintain these systems. And so, uh, you know, if you're a young person who is mechanically inclined, interested in working with their hands and working in their community and not sitting behind a desk all day, 
um, these are great careers to, to contemplate. Yeah, I, I, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I have a friend here in Raleigh, North Carolina that owns a small HVAC company, medium size, I guess. They're, they're, they're pretty big in this area. But I was asking him about the shortage that he has and how he, you know, he's sending... He's sending kids to, to community college and paying for everything and giving them stipends and so forth. Wow. But he said the, 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 the most valuable thing he could possibly find is someone that is an HVAC expert and an electrician. Like he, so he's sure. trying to send, he's trying to actually give scholarships to kids that will go, to, go through both of those programs at once because that way you can send one truck, one person, they can do it all, um, which apparently is much more efficient. Yeah, that's great and not surprising. And, um, and I think more and more contractors will, will, in part because of this bill, start to see the world this way. This is a way of, you know, m most contractors do less than a million, 80% of contractors do less than a million dollars in business a year. So they're mom and pop contractors. They're doing roughly 50, 75 jobs a year. So, you know, if one in 10 of those jobs is an electric job, I want a heat pump. Well, you know, it's it's not enough to go through the, the hassle of retraining uh, the workforce. But if you start to say, look, because of this piece of legislation and because of other pieces of legislation and the sort of raw economics, this is where the market is moving. And it's not going to be five of the jobs next year, but it's going to be 20 of the jobs next year that are going to require you to install heat pumps and upgrade uh, breaker boxes. Well, then it makes sense for your friend and for others uh, to begin to invest in training because this is where the market is moving. If they want to participate in that market and grow their businesses, uh, there's a clear signal here. This is where they need to go. One question I have is that, is this just for residential buildings? Because surely there needs to be decarbonization of commercial buildings as well. There's, I'm not an expert in all the provisions in the bill. There is money for commercial buildings as well uh, and for landlords and investors in those buildings. And so, you know, our focus has been on the residential sector because we think part of the issue here is how do we build a participatory climate movement? As Pete indicated uh, previously, this was, participation in this has been pear-shaped pear also in terms of who cares about who, not who cares, but who's been able to take action in the climate space. You know, what we've told people, the narrative we told people historically is either stuff that really doesn't add up, kind of greenwashing, like, you know, don't use plastic straws and, and become a vegan. And there may be good reasons to be vegan and to not use plastic straws, but they're not, it's not really going to move the needle on climate. Um, so do that or, you know, and, and there's going to be some genius that Bill Gates or somebody else identifies and funds who's going to build, uh, you know, magic vacuum cleaners that are going to suck carbon dioxide out of the air. So either we're going to pray for some miracle or uh, we're going to have to radically transform our lives in order to stop climate change. Uh, or you can be wealthy enough to afford to invest in solar and an investment tax credit and buy a Tesla and buy offsets and sort of, uh, you know, pretend that you're not having an impact on climate. Uh, and so what this bill does is, and what our whole movement is about, is, by, is allowing ordinary Americans, not just the poor, not just the middle class, but ordinary upper middle class Americans, giving them a chance to actually participate and to participate in a way that 
not only delivers benefits to the planet, but delivers benefits to their own pocketbooks and to their own homes in the form of $1,800 a year. So uh, we're super excited about the consequences of this. People have complained, well, this is not enough money and it's only 10 years. And I'm quite confident, and if we look back at other policies that have passed, that 10 years from now, uh, the political landscape is going to look very different, not just 10 years from now, but three, five years from now, because there are going to be contractors of the type Pete described in every community in America who are employing people, paying them good wages, creating real wealth locally, installing heat pumps, installing hot water heaters, installing solar panels, installing breaker boxes. Uh, and th that will matter to Congress people and mayors and governors in every community in America because there are real jobs there and there are real economic benefits. Uh, and so I am quite optimistic about the, the fact that these things will end up being evergreen provisions and that the investment here will expand over time because everybody will recognize the benefits to households and to communities of investing in this way. Alex, you, one of the things we've been struggling with uh, at our company is what acronym to use for the Inflation Reduction Act, right? You know, because <laughs> using using IRA is it a retirement count? Is it the Irish Republican Army? And 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 but I, but we're also appreciative of the fact that one of the reasons this this was a bipartisan bill to some degree and it passed and there's so much excitement is because it's not called the Climate Bill; it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's that that makes a difference in some ways. And, and so my question is, as we really look to electrify our homes, one of the big devices that we need to change is heat pumps. And mm -hmm. most people don't understand that a heat pump both heats and cools your home and it, that it has a valve that basically reverses. Um, and that's, that's how it works. Right. Any thoughts or ideas on what to call heat pumps other than heat pumps? <laughs> we have a, uh, Leah Stokes, who's a climate celebrity, and for good reason, because she's brilliant and passionate and tireless and has been among the most instrumental voices to get the IRA passed. And I think IRA is a fine acronym. We can use it for more than one thing, um, uh, particularly because the Irish Republican Army is sort of no longer in need of using it. Um, anyway, Leah's been working with us on the policy front and has been describing these as cool heat pumps, both do allude to their ability to cool and heat, but also to how, you know, how exciting they are. I do want to correct one thing you said, though, Pete. You said this was a bipartisan climate bill. Uh, it was a stretch. <laughs> there, were, there, were, there, were, there were 50 senators uh, who, who voted against the bill. All of them are Republicans. Not a single Republican senator voted for it. Uh, the reauthorization of it will be bipartisan because the jobs will be created in every congressional district. But this is this is the consequence of uh, of Democrats pushing for this bill and getting and coming to agreement and getting it through uh, by the narrowest of margins. And so I am I'm optimistic. I will remain optimistic in the face of of evidence. Uh, uh, and so I am hopeful that the next climate bill will be bipartisan. But this one was not. Uh, well, Alex, I, you know, I'll just share a personal story about kind of going through a little bit of this electrification myself recently. Uh, we recently replaced a, an on-demand gas water heater with a heat pump hot water heater. And, um, you know, I have two teenagers still living in the house, and they, they listen to me drone on about, uh, about climate change and everything we need to do. And I think about 
10% makes its way through by osmosis, but I'll take it. But um, the heat pump not only works great, but for them, they have gone from uh, hot water in four minutes because the hot water heater, the on-demand was in our garage, to hot water in four seconds. So not only is it better for the climate, better wow. better product, but literally immediate hot water. So just a better experience, just like an e- just like you described an EV. It's just just better. Yes. So um, it's it's it is really a story of abundance. It's not a story of sacrifice. These products are better products, less maintenance, more comfort, and uh, in the long run, less cost. A hundred percent. It's it's excite it's an exciting experience for the whole family. Indeed. Well, one of the objectives that we have of this podcast is to connect people who are starting out in their careers with good resources on clean energy. So do you have any books or articles that you'd recommend? Oh, there's so much great stuff out there. I a plug to Rewiring America. We have a lot of great research uh, that we're doing and publishing and then it, citations to other great resources. You know, it's an, an oldie but a goodie at this point, uh, still a goodie, which is Smart Power by Peter Fox Penner, who's a friend and should be a podcast guest if he, if he hasn't been, just explains how the American power sector works. I guess I've been reading a lot that isn't climate related. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of good and, you know, sort of challenging to read uh, or upsetting to read climate books. Uh, but I think I've been reading a bunch about World War II uh, and how we came together as a community, as a country to overcome what seemed like insurmountable odds. So I read a book called The Arsenal of Democracy, which is great. I'm also, I'm just reading uh, now a book that my wife read and recommended, you know, but like many things that she recommends, it takes me a while to figure out a book by uh, Scott Nearing and his wife about living the good life. And this was a couple that, um, were blacklisted from academia in after the First World War because they were opposed to the war and they went and lived off the land in Vermont and then in Maine and lived a very simple, radical life even for then. You know, I think one, I just read the book 4,000 Weeks, which a lot of people have read and recommended about the fallacy that we have, that we you can get it all done if you were just more productive. So mm-hmm. people thinking about the beginning of their career, The world has a lot of really tremendous challenges and problems, and none of us, no matter how gifted or talented, are going to be able to solve all of them, and certainly not alone. Uh, And as you guess are beginning in your career, it's obviously worth becoming an expert in the subject matter that you care about. Uh, But at the same time, I think it's critical to to understand and accept the fact that this is that these challenges are generational challenges are century-long challenges and that if you're lucky and you work hard you'll be a part of a a solution that will involve many many people working across many places and across a long period of time and so um make sure to steal yourself to emotionally prepare yourself it's worth reading other things as well about people solving other problems in other times so yeah I guess I, I didn't read a, a book about how to become an electrician or an HVAC contractor, but um, <laughs> but uh, to Pete's point earlier, that those also would be very worthwhile books for people to read um, because uh, we need more people, skilled labor in this country to to fix, improve, and replace our infrastructure. 
And I'll just give one more plug to Rewiring America. Uh, one of the things that you all implemented is a, I think it's a widget on your front page that is a calculator that individuals can use to see what incentives they specifically would be eligible for with the Inflation Reduction Act. So you just plug in where you live and your how you file your taxes and what your broad income is and as a family, and it will tell you exactly what um, what you're likely to be eligible for where you live. Now, the, a lot of the rules around how this gets implemented are still being codified, right. but, but once we get into 2023, people should, um, through Rewiring America and other, other avenues, be able to quickly understand what they what they can take advantage of. Yeah, thank you for that plug. It's a it's a very cool tool. It will continue to improve. Um, so you know, subscribe to our emails for updates on what we're up to. But we are eager to connect people to these bank accounts they don't yet know exist in their names to help them find the password and the login information so they can take advantage and decarbonize their lives. And the good thing is, um, you know, rush to, to learn more, but but this is at least a 10-year program, and this is not going to happen overnight for everybody. So because uh, you may not need to replace your furnace next year, but decent chance you'll need to replace it in the next five to 10. And so we look forward to being river guides for Americans as they as they make progress uh, on electrifying and decarbonizing their own homes and their own infrastructure. And thank you to American Efficient and to Modern Energy for putting this podcast together for employing you very bright and eager and world-changing people. Um, so thanks for having me. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining us, Alex. It's a pleasure to catch up. Likewise. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. Email us at newgeneration at americanefficient.com or send us a tweet at make us efficient. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show.